0: Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. All right, if you would turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to pick up on a theme we touched on last week, and I really didn't so much plan to talk about it last week. I just kind of bumped into it. And as I did, I felt, man, there's, a, there's oil on this. There's, the Spirit of God really wants to drive this home because I really believe that what we touched on just for a few minutes last week really addresses one of the primary problems in the body of Christ today. Uh, throughout history, there are there are inroads the enemy gets into the body of Christ through teaching. That there are false teachings, but it's not so much the false teachings that concern me, the overtly false teachings. The ones that really concern me are teachings that are true, but have been taken too far. That they've been taken outside of their context, and once you take them outside of their context, they produce error. But the danger of that is, when you have a... A scriptural argument that is true in one context, and you hijack that truth and carry it into a new context, and then you argue it from the scriptures there, people find themselves very confused because something in their spirit says, ah, this doesn't sound right, but they're hearing the word of God, and they're, they're having to argue against the word of God. And so this is one of the enemy's primary strategies. And so one of the things we talked about last week uh, Well, we'll we'll get into that in just a moment, what we are talking about. But what I want to do is start with this verse this morning. And and most of you, if you've been walking with the Lord any time at all, you've heard this verse. I'm going to read it from the King James Version, because the King James Version is a more literal word-to-word translation of this very verse. Many translations, they capture the meaning, but only one facet of the meaning. And the King James Version literally translates the word and leaves the interpretation up to you, which I like better. I want to know what the words say and then let the Holy Spirit give me the interpretation. I don't need some scholar in some Bible school somewhere telling me what it means. That sounded a little harsh, but you know, we we, we need need to have, have the word of the Lord. Okay, so verse 15, listen to what it says. Study to show thyself approved, that old King James Elizabethan English study to show yourself approved unto God. So one of the ways to make yourself approved unto God. I want to be approved by God. Doesn't really matter so much if I'm approved by men. If I'm not approved to God, unto God, then it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. I'm still I've still missed the mark. And if God approves me and no no one else does, I'm still reaching the mark. Then he says this, a workman, so he's saying it's going to take work. Study is work. And you've got, to, you've got to study to show yourself approved. So there's something we find in, in grabbing the word and tearing it apart and beginning to learn about it. So that we have our own understanding of the book. And that is a safeguard against error and deceptive deceiving spirits. So he says, study to show yourself approved and become a workman. So it's going to be work. We're going to, we're going to labor in this. That we, we need to make it a lifestyle. I want to know the Word. Now, I don't want to know the Word just to know the Word. There's no other book I study like the Word. I don't, I don't read a C.S. Lewis book and, and look up the, the root meanings of a word. I don't try to look at the historical context of C.S. Lewis' uh, work because this is an inspire word, inspired word. And so I've got to make it a lifestyle. I want to work at this because I'm hungry to know him. And he reveals himself in the book. And so when I encounter, when I really get into the inside of this thing and I begin to hit the touchstone of the meaning, I have a revelation of him. He speaks to me. It's true for all of us. A workman that doesn't need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. I believe when he says, who does not need to be ashamed, I believe he's especially, what, what Paul is especially alluding to is that, that day of judgment when we all stand before the Lord. We're saved, so we don't answer for our sins. Jesus, Jesus washed our sin away. But what we do is we answer for what we did with the life he gave us. And I don't want to be ashamed by how I handled the Word. I don't want to be ashamed. I tell you what, there's things I've preached ten years ago I don't agree with anymore. And I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to stand before God and find out I gave my life to preaching something that was contrary to His Word. One of the greatest weapons against the, the move of God has been a misuse of the Word of God. All down through history, revival after revival, move of God after move of God, there have been those who have risen up in the church to oppose the move and use the Word of God to do so. But they misapply it. They take a truth out of context and use it to oppose the move of God. And I don't want to stand before the Lord. Christopher was in a service just recently, and it was with Rodney Howard Brown. And uh, a lady got up, and she began to share. Now, Rodney Howard Brown was the man who prayed for Randy Clark when he received his impartation over 20 years ago now. And Randy has now traveled the world, uh, seeing hundreds of thousands of people, probably millions by now, healed by the power of God, revival breaking out, many souls saved. It's tremendous touch. But he, it was Rodney Howard Brown who prayed for him. And this, this woman... Stood up, and she, she was powerfully touched by the Lord through Rodney's ministry back 25 years ago. And she was sharing in, uh, that she was in a service, and she said, I've never seen a man so violently touched by the power of God. This, this pa- he was a pastor, and she said, literally, they had to carry him out of the service. He, he was totally incapacitated, overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. Powerfully touched. Powerfully touched. And when he got home, the next day he got a call from his overseer in the denomination of which he was a part. And his overseer said, what you experienced last night never happened. And She said from then on, and anybody to ever ask him about it, it never happened. The future of that man was a bleak future. There was a barrenness in his family, his church. Uh, it was just not a good future. There was a lot of tragedy that happened. I'm telling you, we need to be on the right side of a move of God. And the Lord needs to be Lord over us, over anybody. I'm telling you, as your pastor, if you are a part of this church, you live under my spiritual authority. Now, to the degree is up to you. But I'm telling you, if I ever tell you to resist the Spirit of God, you obey God rather than me or any other man. We don't want to miss God. But one of the safeguards to mi- not missing God is to know the Word and let Him lead us in the Word. And he has this interesting phrase here. He said, rightly dividing the Word. Now, the, NI- the NAS, the NIV, the e- e- ESV, all these other translations translate that rightly handling the Word. And that is Paul's intention the overall big picture target he's going for. And so that's not an inaccurate interpretation. But I think something's lost in not interpreting the word literally. Because literally it means to divide. It means to, to cut with one fell swoop. There's another Greek word that's used in other passages, but not in this one. And it has the idea of hacking away. Multiple, you know, multiple hits until you sever something. But that's not the word used here. It has the idea of one cut Just a clear cut, and it divides something. And I believe one of the greatest things in this hour that is needed is the wisdom to divide the word. To understand where that truth ends and another one begins. So that we're not taking a truth here and pulling it into another context in which it is no longer applicable. And so we need to understand how to divide the word. Now, what we talked about last week, and this is why I'm getting into this, is we talked about the tension between these two equally true truths. The one is the finished work of Christ. That Jesus paid the price for my redemption. It's, th- this is a truth, uh, the finished work of Christ. But there's an equally true truth over here that we live at tension with that one. And that is the unfinished task. You add to that, this, and what that means is that not everything has happened yet for all of God's purposes to be fulfilled. There are th- still things that need to transpire for the purposes of God to be realized in human history. Now you add to that, this context, that troubling scripture in Colossians chapter 1, I want to say it's verse 24, and Paul said, I, he said, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, saints, And I fill up in my body that which remains of the afflictions or the sufferings of Christ. So what he's saying is there's still some things that remain of the sufferings of Christ. Not all all the sufferings of Christ were suffered at Calvary. There's still some things that need to happen. Yes, Jesus suffered everything for my redemption. So I am born again, I step in, I have it. But not everything, uh, he suffered everything for my redemption, but he didn't suffer everything at Calvary for the fulfillment of all his purposes. So that's the first thing. Not all of Christ's suffering has yet been experienced or absorbed or suffered. The second thing Paul tells us in that little verse is that you and I can pick up some of that and we can pick up that load and we can embrace that suffering. And when we do so, when I suffer for the gospel's sake, for the kingdom's sake, it is attributed to Christ's account. It's an amazing thing because over here Jesus died for me and his righteous acts were attributed to my account. But over here, I can suffer, and my suffering is attributed to his account. It's an amazing thing. And God is looking for those who are willing to embrace the sufferings that still remain. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because there has been an emphasis this last 20 years On the Father heart of God. There's been a tremendous revelation. The Father heart of God. Sonship. But it's been sonship in a very limited sense. That we are accepted. We're royalty. We're sons of God. That we are, you know, we don't have to have our head down staring at our shoes and being ashamed. We're sons of God. We have royal royal rights. We have an inheritance. All of that stuff. And all of that is true. But that's not all that sonship means and because we have an we we understand this there's been such an emphasis on this there's been a tendency to stretch the boundaries of limitations of this truth and push them into the boundaries of this truth so over here we say Jesus paid it all and then we take our personal relationship and what we received in salvation and we receive it as a gift The gift of grace, he paid it all. And we take that and we stretch it over here into ministry. And then when we start thinking about having to suffer to build the kingdom, we say, no, 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 wait a minute. Jesus paid it all. And I run into this with people where they, they don't want to have to suffer. They think any type of suffering is demonic from the devil. God wouldn't allow you to suffer. And the fact is, Paul was very clear, and Paul trumps our sentiments, that we fill up in our body that which remains of the sufferings of Christ. So there's a price over here, Jesus paid the price, but over here there's a price to be paid by you and I. Over here you're born again and heaven is your destination, but if you want to be effective on earth, then there's a price for you and I to pay. And that kind of lingo cuts across the grain of a lot of the teaching and preaching today. And a lot of times it's well-meaning preachers and teachers, and I'm I'm, I'm among those. Well-meaning, we're so emphasizing this, but we don't make clear, we don't rightly divide the word. There's a division between these two truths. Over here, I'm recipient. I'm receiving what he purchased. Over here, I'm a participant. And I'm getting under the load. Over here is a child. Over here is a mature son. Over here, I'm I'm just, I'm I'm consuming what my father produces. But over here, I want to have, I want to produce for the estate of my father. Because I've been so captured by what he did for me over here. He who is forgiven much, loves much. We love him, why? Because he first loved us. And as we get a revelation of his great love, what that's supposed to do is spring up in our heart a corresponding love for him that then lays down our life for the gospel and for his kingdom. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. Let's look at another passage. Ephesians chapter two. Oops. Oops. Look at verse 8. For by grace ye have been saved. Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, with God, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let me read that in the NIV. He says... For by grace you have, been, are you, you have been saved, and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. That's over here. It's a gift. I can't earn it. I have no part to play but say, I believe and I surrender. That, that is, I, I'm, a, I'm a recipient of what he did over here. And so it's the gift of God, and he said, It's not of works, lest any man should boast. There was no work in me, Entering into this category of salvation and being the recipient. But listen to what it says next. For we are his workmanship. He didn't ask us to work. He's working on us for salvation. But then what he said. You are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That's over here. Jesus paid the price. But what he did is he redeemed me so that I would start producing something. He wants me to bring forth good works. He has a plan. He has works prepared in advance. It means when I arrive, when I arrive to the destination, along the pathway of God's, God's purposes for my life as He leads me, I get there and there's a new job to do. There's already things waiting for me to be done. And I'm the one that's called to do them, and I'm the one that's gifted and anointed to do so. That's true for all of us. And so as we are led by the Lord, we discover a new thing. There's works prepared in advance for us to do. Now, works were not the cause of our salvation, but they are most certainly the result and even the purpose of our salvation. Let me say it again: works were not the cause of our salvation. I didn't work to get saved. But the fact is, when I was born again, I entered back on the tracks of God's purposes, and those tracks are going to lead me into productivity. So I become a full-grown son, and I produce the purposes of God. And here's my concern. Many believers today are stuck over here. They're stuck receiving, and what's happened is they have a mental stronghold that makes them immune to conviction to do anything else. They have, there's, there's a defense in their life called a stronghold, a belief system, which inoculates them to conviction because, hey, Jesus did it all. And Jesus did do it all for your salvation. But there's a whole lot you need to do if you're going to be fruitful, if you're going to grow up and begin to produce good fruit. And every one of us, there is so much potential There is so much giftedness. There is so much uh, ordained purpose within the life of each one of us. But what we've got to do is we've got to get this established and then allow that to motivate us to move on into this. I was thinking this morning about the, the story of the prodigal son. Matter of fact, let's turn there. The story of the prodigal son, it's such a vivid picture of this. It's in uh, Luke 15, verse 11. I'm going to begin to read here. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. And for our purposes this morning, we have two sons. We have the one who receives from the father and the one who's a participant with the father. We have one who uh, is rooted in all the father has done. There's another one over here, the elder brother, who is working uh, in the father's vineyard. He is working in the father's fields, okay? The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of my estate. So he divided his property between them. The danger, so this young, the younger son said, Father, give me a, give me a, give me my share of the estate. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus, in telling this story, this parable, this, this little story that's supposed to teach us, it's not a coincidence that the younger, it was the younger son who demanded his share of the estate. Because it speaks of maturity. The younger one, he didn't, he didn't want responsibility. All he wanted was the benefits. And if we get established in this truth and take it outside his boundaries, and we, become, we, we become, have this stronghold that says, no, God doesn't require anything of me. I'm telling you, there are are streams that have come out of the very revival movement that you and I are a part of, that have gotten into grave error over these things. I knew a one young evangelist was uh, being powerfully used to the Lord. He got way off into sexual immorality, and they would celebrate that stuff in his meetings because it's all by grace, and I mean, it became a perverted mess. You want to talk about it? Just an an, it was like a beehive of demons. I mean, it's just grotesque. The guy got off because every Jesus did it all. It's all by grace. Doesn't matter how we live. We're going to heaven. And let's just let's and he's like The the prodigal son, the one that's known as the prodigal. What it says is he came to his father. He said, "I want all my inheritance now." I'm not interested in relationship, I want the benefits. And if we're not careful, we can hear a message of grace, and Jesus did it all, and come to the wrong conclusions. Jesus reconciled us to the Father. That was his purpose. He came to represent the Father, represent him. He said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he died so we could be reconciled to the father. And it's an immature son at best that says, God, I want my inheritance now, and throws off the relationship. Because this son absolutely understood what he was saying to his dad. In essence, what he was saying is, Dad, I know when you die, it's me and my brother. And we each get our portion. And I wish you were dead right now, but since you're not, how about giving me my property while you're still alive? It was an outrageous request. It would have been a scandalous thing in the village in which they lived. So much so that he would have been, he would never have been welcome back in that village again. But it didn't matter to the son, because he just sought for what he could get. And so we know it says, after he had begun, he spent, okay, uh, So he divided his property between them. The father did it anyways, even though the son was so uh, blatantly disrespectful. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, his entire inheritance, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. When we don't understand these two truths that live in tension, that I receive the gift of eternal life, but I need to labor to be productive, I need to be a workman. I need to labor in the father's fields. I'm I'm not just, I'm not content to just live on the farm and milk my dad for all he's worth. I want to be productive. My heart's been captured by him. And I want to build his estates. Because I know, I'm in the same family. If I'm building dad's estate, I'm building my estate. I just want to please the father. But if we don't understand this truth, you know what happens? Just what this boy did. We squander the wealth in wild living. We waste the inheritance. That's great, you're going to heaven. But what are you doing to bring heaven to earth? That's the question. And we can squander it on ourselves if we're not careful, if we don't understand the tension of these two truths the finished work and the unfinished task of which I take part. Here I'm a recipient, over here I'm a partner. And I bear the load because I'm a son who wants to walk with my father in relationship and see his dreams realized. I live to see his dreams realized. I live to see the smile on his face as his purposes are fulfilled in my generation. And so we need to realize that we we'll squander it if we don't understand this. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed his pigs. A Jewish boy, Jews, the Jewish people do not raise pigs, they are unclean. And if you've ever been in a pig lot, you understand why they claim that. It is unclean. I still like bacon, but it, uh, <laughs> amen, Steve. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. I mean, this boy went deep. He not only turned his back on his his childhood teaching, you don't eat pigs, he was ready to eat what the pigs were eating. That's pretty bad off. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. You see, in his mind, because he'd, he'd taken all of his inheritance, he squandered it, now he lost his position in the house and he's thinking, maybe I could go back. I'll never be able to be a son again, but maybe I could be a servant. And so he, he calls, he goes, not calls, gets on his cell phone. No, he, uh, How many of his father's servants? Okay. Verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got, this is what he was thinking. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off. This, this story, if you get in the inside of this, this will break your heart. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. There was something in the gate of his son's emaciated walk. That that dad said, that's my boy. This is a dad who raised this kid. He knew him intimately. Even though the son didn't want to know the father intimately, the father had raised him and watched him, and there was something about the way he walked, that while he was still a far way off, and what that implies is that day after day, the father was looking. Every day, he'd look out the window, sit on the porch, gaze down that long, dusty road. And at times, people would come down the road, but this day, he recognized the walk of his boy. It says he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his sons and th- his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. If you know the Jewish culture, the reason the dad ran is because the father knew how he would be received in this community. They would have begun to throw rotten fruit at him, rotten tomatoes, and driven him out of town with shame because of the, the, the scandalous way in which he treated his father. So his dad, before he could get there, he intercepted him. He wrapped his arms around him, his cloak. He kissed him. And then he called for the servant. And he said, listen, you bring out the best robe. You bring out the ring. You bring the sandals. Because my boy is home. What he wanted to do is he wanted to send a message before anybody else could intercept him. And begin to castigate him. He wanted to say, listen, this is my boy. And I accept him. This is my son. And if I accept him, you have to accept him. The son said to the father, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's as far as he got in the statement. We knew the script. He already told us. He's thinking what he's going to say to his dad. And all he got out was, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what does the father do? He cuts him off. He said, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, bring the, put the finger, ring on his finger, the sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. lest have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was, and is found. So they began to celebrate. So we have a son that was only interested in what he could get from the father. You know why he came back? Because he was still only interested in what he could get from the father. But to the dad, he didn't care. I just want my boy back. He had to get, he had to get low. He, when he was hungry, he went to the pigs. But when he was starving, he thought of the father. And he went to the father. And the father received him with open arms. But then we have another son who really belongs to the other side of this story. Listen to what it says. Verse 25. Meanwhile. I like that. Meanwhile. The older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered to his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now listen to the father's response My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, he didn't say, my other son, he put it on him, he said, This is your brother. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was found. Here's my point from this story. That I know believers that are stuck here. And that's their only revelation of their relationship with God. There's no obligation upon them. There's no responsibility to produce. They are consumers in the kingdom. But I also know believers, and I was one of these for years... I was a son out laboring in the field, working for what I already had and didn't know it. I was trying to earn what had already been given to me for free. And the fact is, both of these truths need to live in tension with one another. We need both revelations. If you only have this one, it'll breed apathy in your life. When people call call you to fasting and prayer or to giving to a mission or you know, anything like that, then what you say is, hey, there's no, we're under grace. We don't, we don't have to. You know, Jesus did it all. Yeah, he did. He got you into heaven. But your crown is based on what you do. You're going to be you're, you're, you're the weight of glory that you carry in heaven. Paul's very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, uh, I think it's chapter 4, he talks about at the judgment where our works, our life literally is going to be placed on on a, this is the way I picture it, he said it's going to be tried by fire. I look at it as a cart going into a blast furnace and it goes on the rails and each one of our lives are just put on there and it goes through and he said, some have built with wood, hay and stubble. It's above the ground, it's seen by all, it looks grand. But when it gets in the fire of judgment, it's a pile of ashes. For centuries in many cultures, ashes on the forehead have represented grief. And many, their crown will be made of the ashes, the ash heap of their life. They're saved, but they have nothing to show for their life in heaven. God gave you salvation as your gift. What you do with it is your gift to him. And, when, and people are going to just, for their crown, rather than a crown, they're going to have a little bit of ashes on their head. So, but others build with gold, silver, and precious stones. All of those things have to be mined out. It takes work. They're not seen readily. It takes work to get them, and they're very, very valuable. And you know what? They will withstand the fire. Matter of fact, they're better because of it. And all of our lives are going to be put on those tracks. And we're going to be, that's, that's going to be the sum total of our life. I believe that is what our crown will be made of. I want you to think about this. When we get to heaven, there's going to be this, this day in heaven where all of us are going to be before the Lord. And we're going to find out what our life really meant to the Lord. What all of our labors or lack thereof meant to the Lord. And some of you, you've given in secret, you've labored, you've prayed, you've fasted, you've contended, you've helped people, and nobody knows it. I believe that some of the the people that are most renowned in Christendom will have a little thimble on their head with one gem. And some of the people we've never heard of, little old ladies, little old men, widowers and widows, are going to have big old crowns. Only eternity will tell. But here's what we're going to do. The Bible says we're going to cast our crowns at his feet. Man, I want to have something to place at his feet. And in reality, what what we're going to say is, Okay, Jesus, I lived my life from the day I got saved. I lived it for you. I went for it, Lord. And he's going to boil all that down into one object, which is the sum total of all our work And we'll enter his presence with that crown on our head. And we'll be overwhelmed. And we're going to lay it at his feet. And in a real sense, we're going to be saying, Jesus, I give it all to you all over again. You're worth it all. It's going to be another opportunity for us to re-give everything we ever gave. Paul talks about living with eternity in mind. Don't live for that which is seen. This is reality. This is the dress rehearsal. That's reality. This is the temporal. That's the eternal. What are you doing with the here and now? God wants to grace us to burn for Him and to live sacrificial lives. And it's the sacrificial life that He can use. It's the sacrificial life that He can empower. It's those lives that God pours out His power and His authority through. So what are you doing with your life? Are you living it for him? What kind of crown will you have? We need to keep this in mind. Now let me just wrap this up with this final thought here. There's a lot of people, and I, I was one of them for many years. I, I cut my eye teeth on David Wilkerson and Leonard Ravenhill and Charles Finney, and, and it was good. It, it made me hungry. It made me passionate. I would, I, I, you know, I would fast and pray and cry out to God. But the problem was, is I was taking that very real truth of the sacrificial life, and I took it out of context, and I was trying to live sacrificial over here. I was like the eldest son. He said to the father, Father, all these years I've been slaving for you, and you never even gave me a goat. And that had to break the father's heart almost as much as the other son saying, I wish you're dead, Dad. Because the father's looking at him and say, son, don't you understand? Everything I have is yours. This is not mine and you're slaving for me. This is ours and you're building your inheritance. And so the secret to living over here, a truly sacrificial life where God can use you in great power is being rooted and established in this. Knowing that you are loved And accepted by the Father. And there's nothing you can do but surrender to it. That is salvation. And if you're not secure here, you will be over here in the field for the wrong reason. You can put it this way. There are partiers and there's plowmen. And often, the way I was raised, it was plowman Christianity. We're out in the field. We're going to please God. And I was deeply offended by the move of God that broke forth in the 90s because they were a bunch of partiers. And it offended me. I remember some of my great heroes. I remember David Wilkerson, who was one of my heroes. But I'm telling you, he missed it on this one. And he said, why he said, why would we lay on the floor laughing when millions are going to hell? We should be weeping. Well, you know what? The joy of the Lord is my strength. And I can't enter the fray of battle without being strengthened by the joy. I want to I laugh with him when he laughs. I, I want to know the joy. I want to be a partier, okay? But I also want to be a plowman. And I want to laugh over there and I want to weep over here. I want to weep for the souls of men. I want to be a man that God can say, I'm I'm, uh, I'm going to spend you, Dave. I'm, I'm cashing in on what I put in you, and I'm going to spend you well. Are you willing? And I want to say, Lord, just spend me. But I've got to be rooted in that in order to have this. So this without that creates a legalism in our life that causes us to try always to please the Father. And like the elder son, we're working for something we already possess And it's tragic. You can spend years trying to accumulate something you already have in the vault and you don't even know it. And waste years. But that without this makes you apathetic and ineffective. And so we need both. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.